Namo tassa bhagavato harahato samma sambuddhasa Namo tassa bhagavato harahato samma sambuddhasa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Homage to the Buddha, the blessed, noble and fully self-enlightened one. So this weekend we're um, just looking at this um, process of taking refuge, refuge in the precepts, and uh, for fear of repeating myself tomorrow, <laughs> uh, I thought I'd just hang around the question of, you know, what is the spiritual search, uh, what's the quality of faith? What role does doubt play in it? That sort of area. There must have been some point in human history where um, this sort of self-awareness arose. And with it there must have uh, somehow dawned the question of, you know, like, who am I? What am I doing here? There must have been, at some point, who knows when, where there were these fundamental questions must have slowly arisen. And, um, you know, these, these three questions of, like, who am I? And how do I relate? And uh, what do I do? And these congealed over time into what are discernible three parts. Hinduism, I think, has um, very clearly delineated. Uh, but of course, it's there in all the spiritual traditions. And in the Buddha, it's, in the Buddhism, it's enshrined in the Eightfold Path. So, right understanding is trying to answer the question, well, who am I? Or why am I? <laughs> And the right attitude is, how, now that I'm here, how do I relate? What is my relationship to other people, to, to the universe? How should I relate? And then that moves into action. So now that I've understood why I'm here and how I should relate, what do I do? And that's the path of karma, so path of gnosis or understanding, and the path of love, that's what relate, you know, when you ask the question how do I relate, you're really asking what is love and then finally what do I do and um, according to the Buddha these sorts of questions arise out of suffering so this word dukkha, it it has various meanings, so it's not just uh, the awful physical suffering that we can go through or mental distress but it's uh, at that deeper sort of spiritual level a sort of sense of um, alienation and sort of an existential a feeling of of meaninglessness meaninglessness you know like and that that can come across hard to people and it ends up as being a sort of uh, can be a real deep 
depressive sort of state of living without any meaning especially in our society which at least on the surface is just driven by a hunt for the next exciting thing to do you know, what's the next film what's the next you know, what's the next kick what's the next buzz you know it's like we're constantly searching for something to distract the mind um, and you're constantly fed the understanding that pleasure re- uh, and the pleasures of relationship uh, are equated to happiness you know like the, this car will definitely make you happy you know and um, we know just because of the nature of things because of the nature of the transience the ephemeral nature of things the fact that things arise and pass away change now that can't be so but that it's not as though um, we grasp that there's still within us this search for happiness now none of us here may be drug addicts or completely lost in that commercialism in that um, um, consumerism we might not we might know that but even so we, we still do it we still seek happiness in a cup of tea cost of coffee uh, <laughs> it's like you're always looking for a place where you can find relief you know it's like and that's your refuge every time you do that what you're saying is that cost of coffee is my refuge you go in there and choose a cake, you see. So next time you do that, and you know you're going in there really just to escape boredom or, or whatever, it's hard to really rationalise or to give some real purpose to coffee. But having done so, one can, <laughs> one can sort of sit there and gaze at it and say, I am taking refuge in coffee. You know? and, and, and let that sort of sink in a while. You shouldn't stop you drinking the coffee. It's just acknowledging that. It's not going to really give what the heart really seeks. And uh, if you were to ask, well, what, what does the heart want? What does the heart want? Yeah. Never mind the head, understanding, why is this, why is that? Where does the heart want to be? If you ask yourself that question. Yeah. Now, even the heart can be confused, can be doubting as to where it wants to be so as I say a lot of people would would want to place their heart in a relationship trusting a relationship trying to find the right person that's that's going to be the the wherewithal of our lives taking refuge in somebody else you see but that's unreliable isn't it I mean uh, people who were deeply in love end up stabbing each other. <laughs> when uh, people take the vow to um, to marry, to to take care of, and all the the lovely things that they say, till death do us part. Sort of an idealism, isn't it? It's like. And there's a presumption in that ceremony that it, it is actually going to happen. <laughs> and then a few years down the line, it sort of corrupts. 
even if it doesn't corrupt and people fall apart and go separate ways there's that confusion often between what love is and what the emotion that we call love is and I remember going I remember um, doing a little ceremony for people who were getting married and it was combined with um, a sort of new agey ceremony (laughs) it was very lovely and they asked me to say something and when I when I pointed out that love real love had nothing to do with emotions like there was a a sort of stunned silence in the room (laughs) like that you know (laughs) like what is it then if it's not and um, what we discover of course is that love is an attitude it's a disposition it's a way of relating whether you like somebody or not I mean that's the one of the good things about the spiritual life that when we're practicing together we're all helping each other it's irrelevant whether we like each other or not and often the person whom you don't like the person who's uh, sort of disturbing you is your teacher they're telling you where where your buttons are I once um, a long time ago did a retreat and there was this you know, in, the, uh, in, the, in the Eastern tradition all the men sit together and the women sit over there and there was this man and he was for six days sniffing have you ever sat next to somebody who's sniffing all the time now I wouldn't want to shock you with what I was going to do with that man's nose <laughs> <laughs> And uh, the teacher at the time, it was Ajahn Samedo actually, some of you will know him, um, took a break on Thursday. And I thought he was getting too tight or something. And I happened to mention this to another man and asked him if this nose was also upsetting him. And to my amazement, he hadn't even heard it. Hadn't even heard it. I said, oh, fine. And at the end of the retreat, because we had another day to go, he came to me and he says, I did hear it, he said, <laughs> all yesterday. <laughs> Is that what happened with, with uh, unwholesome speech? Well, maybe I shouldn't have said it, I don't know. But he was obviously more annoyed with me than the man's nose. He hadn't, <laughs> he hadn't heard it. <laughs> so, uh, asking ourselves the question, you know, where does the heart want to be? It wants to be content, doesn't it? Isn't that the... Isn't that the sort of deepest place you want to be? To be content. Well, what does that mean, to be content? To accept the way things are, no matter what they are, whether they're pleasant or unpleasant. A sort of acceptance. But not with resignation. Resignation suggesting some sort of despair. I can't do anything about it. But more that sort of openness. Um, this is the way it is. And then in seeing the situation clearly, as clearly as we can, always, because we're in a process of time, you know, time moves, possibilities arise, you know. So, searching that uh, contentment, and then, as it were, I mean, what I'm suggesting is that that's what we're deeply searching for. So it might start off with just wanting to put an end to suffering. 
You know, it might be phrased that way. It's definitely how the Buddha started. You know, he, he set out quite clearly, I mean, he says it himself, quite clearly, because he was, he was in a state of confusion, a state of, a state of suffering. So he goes off searching for the end of suffering. And uh, as, you, as we go searching, as we go into the various different types of teachings, um, somehow we have to make a connection with that, with that teaching, if it's going to work for us. And that's really what we mean by faith. And a lot of people go, go through the process of listening. They listen to the teaching or read about it. And this brings up a certain confidence, because that's what faith is. Yeah, a certain confidence in what, what they're hearing. So it's not a belief. If what we mean by belief is a sort of uh, a total acceptance of a statement, see, that would be an error in terms of the Buddha. Because what belief does is it stops you investigating, it stops you taking the process any further. You take refuge in a mental state of belief. I believe so, I'm all right, I'll be saved. That's also a false refuge. It might make you high. <laughs> like I'm free now I'm, I believe you know I believe in God I believe in the Buddha now I can go and have my Costa coffee <laughs> it all takes away a whole area of problems I believe okay? that's it well what are you about but that stops the investigation that stops the the process of trying to find out whether it's true for me personally now what we discover of course is that uh, the next step, having heard something, we then begin to think about it ourselves. So that this knowledge that we've picked up becomes our own particular way of thinking. We've thought it through ourselves, to some extent. Huh? But then we get this practice, we get this uh, direct experience of the path, this direct. And of course, it's in the practice that we're not only... Uh, should we say, stabilizing that faith through the practice because it actually works. But the very practice is itself the process of liberation. Okay. Now that, that faith is, um, is an ability to be open, to be willing to have a go, to keep going. All of you must have that or you, would just, or you simply wouldn't be here. So it's there, it's there within you, you see. There are people who don't need to go through that. You know, sometimes on seeing a person, like they just feel it's their, it's their, it's their path, it's their way. In my own case, both happened. I, I entered into the Buddhist path in that sort of gingerly way, um, investigating this, investigating that, you know, having to go. I mean, I didn't, there wasn't the choice when I started in the 70s, middle 70s. Um, but I remember at one point I, when, I, when I was with a teacher there was a very direct, clear connection that this was, this was my teacher and I, I, went to, I went to Burma to be with him you know? it didn't stay that long but it was, <laughs> it was very clear I never had that with anybody else I've had lots of teachers I've had lots of people I've been with but I just knew that this person was going to get me through. It was going to really 
make it for me. So that leap of faith which sometimes happens in the heart is also uh, you know, uh, a proper act of faith. You know? And it's, in a sense it's much more strong than a faith which arises through thought. Because it's coming from that deeper level within us, that sort of uh, uh, deep connection. The, um, there's that case of an Artapindika in the scriptures who's um, a merchant. Um, it was the time when merchants were really becoming a very rich caste or class. The castes weren't so rigid in those days. And um, I think it was his brother-in-law or his brother had met the Buddha and had actually set up a little monastery for him. And while he was visiting an Artapindika, he mentioned uh, about the Buddha and it would seem that just the word, the Buddha, seemed to have uh, awoken in him this enormous connection already. And he's, he went on to become um, the mo- well, a great supporter. Bought him um, a, a land for a monastery and stuff like that and was forever uh, supporting the Buddha. But that was just a sort of an immediate connection, even by a word sort of something in the air you might say I've known people to do that from pictures you know of Indian gurus just seeing a picture they sort of made that connection nobody's done it with me (laughs) (laughs) hang on I've got to get get older so it's um, it's that sort of um, there are these two two ways in which one can make that sort of faith it's a confidence isn't it now you can't move without that you can't commit yourself without without confidence and that's not just a spiritual balance it's anything you know um, whether it's a job sometimes you wonder whether you can do it whether you should be doing it you know and if there isn't that confidence you, you can't take the job or you do it feeling really fearful about it same with the relationship, whether you want to start a relationship with somebody or, or, or uh, cement a relationship, you know, either a partnership or a marriage. And if, you, if you're in a state of doubt, well, it might be, I don't know whether I should, or maybe I can't, and all this sort of stuff, you can't, you can't commit yourself. So that sense of confidence, trusting, to, to trust, hmm, has to be there. And um, in the actual spiritual path, the trust is largely to do with ourselves I think I mean you can trust the teacher you can trust the teaching but eventually you've got to have a trust in yourself you see and some people have a lot of problems with that have a lot of problems with doubt one way or the other (coughs) Uh, I shall leave exactly what it is we're putting our trust in like the Buddha Dhamma Sangha till tomorrow you'll all fall asleep tomorrow But um, here's a case where, and this gives you a, an idea of, of how quickly one can sort of uh, take refuge in the Buddha. So there's a Brahmin, Janusoni, and he comes to see the Buddha. And it's basically a question about practice. So this Brahmin is obviously a, a practitioner. Uh, and he says to the Buddha, you know, people who go to the, into the jungle, into, into the forests, and live on their own, um, they go mad. And is that is that not is that not your experience that people go mad 
when they go off by themselves. So there's obviously in those days there were lots of these uh, men mainly. There were, there were a few women, but it was it was difficult um, for a woman to do it because there wasn't the the protection really against men. <laughs> so all these men were going off doing doing the sort of hippie trip that happened in the in the in the sixties and seventies and uh, searching for this. Uh, enlightenment, this liberation and um, obviously some of them were going bonkers out there you know, they were sort of losing it and the Buddha then goes into quite a, a clear uh, definition of what it is that stops you going mad and, and, and the two main things are that your virtue is good that you're, that you're not you're not going into that sort of situation with huge guilts and problems and whatnot. Something that has to be cleared, as it were. And also, even if you have that sort of thing, uh, you're very clear that from now on you are virtuous. And that gives you a sort of solid rock within yourself. And the other thing is a disciplined mind. See, Because as we know in our meditation, if the mind's not disciplined, it goes, well, it goes bonkers. So, having said all this, Janusoni... Uh, is um, is really taken by it, and he also answers another question, which is of interest, which I've mentioned before uh, this weekend. Is that uh, he says to Janus only that he keeps going to the forest for his own quiet abiding, and as a and as a teaching for others, as a, a good example for others. Okay. And uh, this is the sort of classic response that you get throughout the scriptures to various persons. Excellent, good Gotama. So they would call him by his his family name, yeah? your surname, basically. Excellent, good Gotama. It is as if one might set upright what has been upset, or might disclose what was covered, or show the way to one who has gone astray, or bring an oil lamp into the darkness so that those with vision might see material shapes. Even so, in many a figure, has the Dhamma been made clear by the by the venerable Gotama. Thus I am going to the Venerable Gautama for refuge, the Dharma and the Sangha. May the Blessed Gautama accept me as a lay follower, going for refuge from today forth, as long as life lasts. So he's re- he really taken back, <laughs> as long as life lasts. He's really taken back. But um, this, wasn't all, this wasn't always the case. <laughs> and there's a lovely one. Well, there are two, two occasions, actually. But this one is... A man called, who's termed Dandapan, which means stick in hand. And uh, he asks the Buddha in a rather provocative way, he says, what, does the, what does this recluse assert? You know, what do you proclaim? See? So uh, he, he, he responds this by saying, I assert and proclaim that I do not quarrel with anybody, that the world quarrels with me. <laughs> <See>? <laughs> and then he goes on to explain the teaching. But even so, uh, Dandapani, who was a Sakyan, he belonged to the same uh, tribe yeah, that the Buddha did, shook his head, wagged his tongue, raised his eyebrows until his forehead puckered in three lines and then departed, leaning on his stick. <laughs> so, you know, the Buddha must have given him a, a really a, a good old talk. He still went away with great doubts, you know. And there's also a lovely thing which, uh, in a sense, also shows us that when after the Buddha was enlightened, he wasn't a natural teacher in, in a sort of... Um, he had to learn how to teach, just as he heard, had to learn 
the path to liberation. And he meets, um, he meets one of these ajivakas, these ascetics, just as he's on his way to teach the five old uh, former companions. So he's, he's, just, he's just become liberated, he's thought it through, he's, and he's decided that he is going to try and teach it. And he meets this ascetic on the way. And the ascetic says, you've got lovely bright features, you know, you, you look absolutely splendid, who's your teacher and all that. And the Buddha goes into this amazing statement about, I have no teacher, I am the fully enlightened one, I am the liberated, you see. And the guy says, oh, that's very good, and walks off. <laughs> As you would, if you think about it. If you stop somebody in the street and said, well, you look, um, you know, you look a pretty spiritual advantage. And he said, well, I am the new cosmic Buddha, and I live in the north of London. We used to get letters like that. Yeah, the Bihara. I often wonder what happened to this guy. <laughs> Every so often, a letter would come to the Bihara saying that the, the next cosmic Buddha was living in north of London. <laughs> I never investigated it for the fear he was. But I mean, <laughs> I have to change my path. Um, and of course, it, that didn't work. You know, he had to be. He, I think he, he got the idea he had to be just slightly more subtle. So once we've actually um, established this faith, once we've actually got this this confidence, the question then is, you know, how do we make it grow? How do we? Um, take it to the point where it becomes not just a spiritual faculty but a spiritual strength. So it's one of the spiritual faculties. Faith, uh, effort, awareness, concentration and wisdom. These are the five spiritual faculties as they're called. And it's only when we actually have a glimpse of Nibbana, when we actually experience the ultimate point, even if it's only, as the Buddha said, like a flash of lightning, does that faith now become sort of rock-solid becomes a bala, becomes rock solid. You can't, you can't deny an experience. You can always, up until that point, say, well, maybe, maybe not, who knows, you know. But once you've actually experienced it, then you can't deny it. And that's, that's the conclusion, you might say, the, the fulfillment of faith. Yeah? It's interesting in the Christian story, isn't it, where Peter denies Christ three times even though he knew in his heart of heart, he knew that this was the great guru or whatever. And he denies him, of course, with tremendous remorse if you do that. You can't, you can't go against what you personally know, yeah, for fear in that case. And um, one of the things is good companionship. The Buddha is quite strong about that. Ananda, who was his companion for the last 20 years of his life, um, thought that, he, you know, he, Ananda um, used to make statements like, well, now I think I understand what you're on about. And the Buddha said, oh, no, no, Ananda, no. <laughs> he said, no, you've got a long way to go yet. And uh, on this occasion, he said, um, I think that friendship, good friendship, good luck, good uh, being with people is half the spiritual life. He says, oh, no, Ananda, no, no, no. He says, the whole of it. Um, this is the entire life the livelihood, the, the entire way you're living, Ananda. That is good friendship and companionship, good comradeship. When a meditator has a good friend, a good companion, a good comrade, it is expected that he would develop and cultivate the Noble Eightfold Path. And I think um, most of you who go to groups will know that to go to a, a, an evening group once a week or whatever is a real fillip. It, 
it sort of gives you that, that little bit of energy, that group energy. You know? And coming here or going to a meditation center, it's not, just, it's not just a case of coming here to practice, but to actually be with people. And you go away with, uh, imbued, as it were, with their confidence, with their energy. And then there are things which really support that commitment, that faith. Um, it's a bit heavy, really. He says to be perfect in virtue. Well, that's a bit heavy. <laughs> I think everybody here. Uh, but at least to move towards it, to move towards uh, virtue. And we won't do that unless we make the connection between virtue and liberation. You can't be liberated, you can't be fully awakened without having been purely, uh, uh, entirely purified. The one goes with the other. And the reason is simple, because all the um, unwholesome, unskillful things that we do are the measure of our delusion. So once the delusion goes, then obviously all that bad stuff goes too. But it works the other way. If you work against your bad stuff, uh, the, the stuff that you see is unwholesome, then you must be growing in, in wisdom too. It sort of leans, the one moves towards the other. In the Eightfold Path, right understanding, right attitude. So we can start with right understanding, but you can also start with right attitude. So for instance, you might start with um, saying to yourself, um, to grow in compassion in some way. Well, whatever life presents itself, to make that an opportunity for compassion through generosity, through, through helping, etc., etc. Now, as you do that, unwittingly, you're making that connection of interrelatedness between people. And that, of course, comes up as this business of being interdependent. Okay? So it doesn't matter which way you begin the process, the one will always affect the other. Training according to the rules of training. So here, uh, although he's talking to monks, this is also to do with our precepts. The, you know, the, re the, the precepts that we take, the training rules. They're translated as precepts, but the actual word means training rule. It's, a rule, it's, a, it's an actual training. Engaging in talk concerning effacement. Yeah? You know, not, not trying to put oneself first all the time or, or making big of oneself. Favouring the heart's release. Yeah? And here we can say that that's to do with letting go of those attachments, letting go of those compulsive behaviours. You know? And what the Vipassana is doing is showing us how to do that. So we don't just do Vipassana when we're sitting. Yeah? Anytime. You could, be, you could be standing at the bus stop and, and you could feel this you know, great desire to go into Costa Coffee. But you let it go. <laughs> You, you sort of let it go, you let it go, you see. And you're, you're observing the feeling, you're observing how, how strong it is. The energetic, be energetic in abandoning what is unprofitable. So that's discerning what's unprofitable, but in abandoning it, not, you know, making that determination, I'm not going to go down that path, I'm not going to do that again. See? And although that, that can be, um, that can feel... Uh, painful and whatnot. Remember that as soon as you stop doing something, you're withdrawing the energy from that conditioning. You're just withdrawing the energy from that conditioning. Yeah? So if somebody has a habit, say, of smoking, the thing to do is to stop. And then, of course, you get the pain, you get the horror of it, 
Well, first of all, you have to stop. You have to, you have to say, no, I'm not doing it. So if you see anything that you're doing, anywhere where you feel a compulsive behavior, which is being imprisoned, isn't it? I mean, you, you become a prisoner of your desire. You know, it's sort of dragging you around. It sort of hooked you by the nose and sort of, you know, come this way, come that way. I mean, well, <laughs> dreadful. And developing, of course, what is unprofitable, what is profitable. So there's always the other side. Yeah? When we start with the five precepts, that's things that we don't do. We try not to get involved in, even at a subtle level. But then there's always the opposite of that. And this is expressed in right attitude as moving from hatred to love, from cruelty to compassion, and from selfishness to generosity. So there's also the positive side of our actions. And interestingly enough, understanding impermanence. The Buddha seems to have centered on that one, the impermanence. And you might say, well, why is that? Why doesn't he center on suffering? you know, the, the psychological suffering, the process of desire, because it's there in the, in the Four Noble Truths, the cause of suffering is desire. So why doesn't he plug that? So much, I mean, he, he obviously plugs it, but, but it's this impermanence. And then there's the doctrine of anatam, not me, not mine. So why doesn't he go for that? And the reason is, it's because through impermanence that one can see the other two more clearly. So when you see that things are impermanent, you see that holding on to something is going to cause suffering. When you see that something is impermanent, how can it be substantial? How can it be me? Every time I point to, well, this is what I am, it's, it's gone, it's changed, something else. Yeah. And we say of people who are stuck in views, for instance, we call them opinionated. But, but a definition of a self is that, it's, is that it's whole, entire, doesn't move, knows where it is, stuck, you know what I mean? It's like solid, but when you look at your, your phenomenal being, like you, the sensations you get from your body, your feelings in your heart, the thoughts in your mind, they're constantly in this process of change. So you can't point to something, you can't say, well, I am happy, see? One minute you say, I am happy. Next minute, I'm depressed. <laughs> Where's his eye? Where's his eye to be found? If you say, well, I was I was happy, well that's of course, that's dead. If you try and extend your I beyond the present moment, you're losing existence. See, I will be happy, well, that's a waste of time, that is. I want to be happy now. <laughs> so, being aware of impermanence is, is a sort of gateway into the other two. Um, he reinforces this in the Mangala Sutta the, the Sutta, the discourse on the highest blessings not to associate with fools but to associate with the wise to honour those worthy of honour and then uh, relationship with the teacher um, this Kalyanamita, the good friend <coughs> and he has a lovely passage here about how, how we we can relate to a teacher. Here one has faith in the teacher and visits him or her. When he visits, he pays respect. When he pays respect, he gives ear. One who gives ear hears the Dharma and having heard the Dharma, memorizes it, examines the meaning of the teachings. When the teachings 
um, when, when, the, when the meaning is examined, it develops the intellectual acceptance of these teachings. So now we're going back to this, how faith grows. When zeal, uh, yes, and z- when, when there is an acceptual, an acceptance of teaching, zeal springs up. That's true, isn't it? When you have faith in something, there's a sort of an energy comes to follow it through. Yeah? As soon as you have confidence for the job, there's a sort of energy comes through. Zeal. And when zeal is sprung up, then the will is applied. And when the will is applied, there's a scrutiny. So this is the meditation now. And the striving, resolutely striving, realizes ultimate truth and sees it by penetrating it with intuitive intelligence. So there's a whole process that happens once you, uh, once you have that faith. And it, it can come either through, um, through uh, the actual practice itself or through a relationship with a teacher. As I say, you know, in my own case, uh, going through various teachers, all, all inspiring, all of them sort of being able to point me in the right direction. And if I were to ask myself, um, would I have progressed without these people helping me? No, it's not possible. A teacher, a teacher is, is actually kernel to the practice. Not that one becomes attached to the teacher, you know, my guru, that wouldn't be really where the Buddha's at. Because it's, um, the teacher is one who points, the one who instructs, one who clarifies for the student. Yeah. I know that in certain forms of Buddhism you do get that, that guru thing. But it's definitely not there in the, the Buddha himself. He doesn't... Um, I mean, he's, he's on his... If I remember rightly now, uh, he's actually dying. And there's a monk looking at him in that sort of very loving, attached way of my teacher, my guru. Sends him off to the forest. <laughs> and the reason is that that sort of attachment is, a, is a, again, a barrier to investigating. It's a barrier, actually, to be able to criticise the teacher. You, you become... Uh, you become fooled, can't you? I mean, you know, we've heard stories of people who've been fooled by, by gurus. So it's not that sort of thing. It's more to do with a respect, an openness, a, an ability to listen, to follow the practice, and to keep that sense of um, distance so that you can um, discriminate as to whether the teaching is actually doing you good. That's the point. Now there are, of course, uh, the old dangers to, uh, to that undermine faith, and one of them we've already talked about—the distinction between faith and belief. Um, there's a lovely discourse called the Kalama Sutta, and the Kalamas were a people who were obviously uh, very interested in, in the spiritual path. This village, uh, all these people, have become very interested. And uh, they complain that, um, you know, this, this guru would pass through and say, uh, well, whatever those gurus say, that's a load of rubbish. And this is the truth. <laughs> and then the next guru would come along and say, no, no, no. They're a load of rubbish. And this, they're, they're completely confused. And when the Buddha comes, he, he, simp- he, he says to them, um, not to believe anything. Yeah? 
that's I'll take it from this from the actual discourse because it's a bit more I think the translation is slightly better um, he said don't go by oral tradition so in those days things were handed down by you know by rote learning so just because it's oral tradition the lineage of teaching this has been a long lineage but it still might not be true I think it was Gandhi said truth can be in a minority of one not by hearsay see? somebody's told you or by a collection of scriptures so this must have been added later because the Buddha was was um, illiterate which always comes as a shock to people <laughs> then so was everybody else <laughs> he didn't do any writing eh? there was no writing the only people who had writing as such were the, were the growing merchant classes even today you know in, in Hinduism the Brahmins they, don't, they still learn it off rote it's still very much part of their practice not by logical reasoning see now that might come as a surprise to a lot of people but where's reason taken us you know? our own enlightenment the 18th century enlightenment which put reason to the fore um, and, and did away with tradition you know it had to be reasonable and it, of course out of that grew our whole scientific tradition and our technology it's been a huge sort of exploration and, and a sort of a wondrous couple of hundred years really if you think about what's been invented um, and it's produced the wonderful Declaration of Human Rights UN Declaration of Human Rights so there's no there's no mention of God in that that's just human reason you know like how do we live peacefully together what are our rights but it also produced communism and Nazism and that's what that's what is a bit so reason is only, um, uh, should we say, reasoned on a on a premise. So you c- you can you can reason anything once you once you take a premise. If your premise is human beings are not equal, off you go. You get a great, fantastic. You can write a book book about that. <laughs> Inferential uh, reasoning. That's that's almost you know like for instance, I have a headache. I've had headaches. So when you say um, you have a headache. I'm inferring that you must have the same sort of pain that I have in my head. He says, not even that either. He says, don't, don't believe it, you see. Then he goes on um, reflection, just on your own reflection. Just because you've reasoned it, don't believe it. This is a bit heavy, isn't it? Or by acceptance of the view after pondering it, the same thing. Or by seeming the seeming competence of the speaker. See, oh, you be careful of that. Silver tongues and all that. Or because you think the ascetic is our teacher, the guru. But then he says it's only when you know for yourself these things are wholesome, these things are these things are blamable, these things are to be censured by the wise. These things, if undertaken and practiced, lead to harm and suffering. Then you should abandon them. And then he, he, he talks about the positive side. So it's it's um, well it's a case of um, a combination of practice and reasoning it's not just that you reasoned it it's also your own personal experience so take for instance people who say suffer from uh, things like anxiety heavily or, or depression um, what uh, the teaching will say to them is you're causing you yourself are the cause of your own depression 
So I mean, that's that's a that's a turnaround. Most people think that you know, it's their, it's their partner that's depressing them, <laughs> or the job, or or the the country, the prime minister. Everybody's depressing them. Well, they're totally depressed. <laughs> and then suddenly, uh, this Buddhist teacher comes along and says, "No, you're making yourself depressed. Nobody can make you depressed. Nobody can cause you psychological pain." See, so first a person might reject that as being absolute rubbish, you know. And then, then they say, well, look, um, why don't you just, you know, sit quietly with me now and, and just watch how the mind is working. See? And then they, you do the meditation you realise, oh, yeah, it's me. I'm, I'm making myself depressed. <laughs> what an eye-opener. So it's that sort of expiration, not just believing it, but actually making it true to yourself. So it's all these things, really, he said it's not just by inference, not just by listening to a teacher. It's a combination of, of both the hearing, the understanding, personal reflection, personal practice, personal experience. And then one comes to realise, oh yeah, this is, this is true, this is true for me. I mean, the Buddha knew when he was liberated. He knew when he'd experienced Nibbāna. It's not as though he came off and wondered, no, what was that? <laughs> he knew that was the end of stuff. He knew he'd been lit, he knew he was liberated as soon as he did it. So that's um, not to confuse faith with belief anyway, that's all. The other thing is uh, you'd be careful not to be uh, too critical. Because often it's all to do with what we expect from our practice. And it's a big, it can be a real undermining of doubt. People come to the practice with expectation. And uh, when these expectations, when these hopes are not fulfilled, then the doubt begins. It's not doing me any good. It's not. I mean, I've come across that many a time. And um, you have to be careful of that because... Um, in a sense, what expectation is doing is it's, it's producing a future which has maybe completely contrary to the actual manifestation of the path within you. So <clears throat> just taking a, a, an instance where other people are criticizing. So here's a lovely thing. It's called the Baddali Sutta. And this monk is always doing daft things or wrong things. And he's always being criticized. And the Buddha said, this bhikkhu progresses by way of faith and love. Let him not lose the measure of faith and love, as he may if we take action against him by repeatedly admonishing him. Suppose a man only had one eye, then his friends and companions, his kinsmen and relatives, would guard that eye, thinking, let him not lose his one eye. <laughs> so too, some bhikkhu progresses by measure of faith and love. So... That's in a sense of, um, you know, people with people, but even with ourselves, be careful not to, you know, to, to, to note self-criticism, you know. Like, I can't do this meditation, my head's going all over the place, I can't do it, see. Don't, don't believe your own mind, that's ridiculous. <laughs> you know, I'm believing everybody else is, but your own mind, our own minds are liars, dreadful things. Wouldn't bother with it, really.
also what undermines the practice is uh, unethical behavior. It's very interesting that because when you when you start doing things which you know is wrong, you start losing self-respect. It's to do with the quality of shame, but it's sort of self-respect, self-esteem. And this, as it were, poisons everything you do because it undermines your confidence in yourself. It can have quite a, an undermining effect on your life to do things which you feel are wrong, <coughs> you know, which are not quite right. <coughs> and uh, this business of expectation, uh, those of you who received my newsletter and actually read it, uh, will... <laughs> I, know, I don't read newsletters, I'm not one to blame anybody else. Uh, you see, I had a little essay in there trying to discern between expectation, aspiration and hope. <clears throat> and um, what expectation does is it, it, puts a, it puts a completion date on things. It puts, a, it puts an ideal ahead of you. And therefore you torture life to fit in with that ideal. I remember I met somebody who said they'd uh, gone on a, a meditation retreat and he'd read the books and it was about achieving liberation, Nibbana. So he went on a course you go on a meditation course. So it's, you know, like if you go on a course to get a certificate for woodwork, at the end you get your certificate. So he joined a week's course in meditation and he'd get Nibbana. <laughs> Years later, there's a bit of an awakener, you see, so it's not quite like that. So that's what expectation is. Um, aspiration is something different. Aspiration is... Um, something that comes from the heart as it's not, it's not, um, it's not so solid. It, it's knowing where you want to go. It's a sort of a general direction. The Buddha talks about inclining to nibbana, inclining. If you stand still and lean forward, you have to take a step. And it's an aspiration. It's a, it's that. It's a sort of a desire. A very can be a very strong desire to aspire to become a Buddha, for instance. But there's no time limit on it. There's, no, there's nothing put around that. It's just the heart's desire. And that's a great freedom and it's a great motivator. See? <clears throat> hope is often used in the sense of good wishes. You know, well, I hope you're well or I hope you do this. I hope I get the job. You know? uh, but I like to use the word hope in its, in its sort of, for want of a better word, theological meaning in the way that Christians use it. Hope is that sort of inner knowledge that comes to you through your practice that there is an end to suffering. And that puts this underlying hope in your life, this underlying joy in your life that there is actually an end to suffering. <laughs> you know, like, there is an end to suffering. And that, that, that sort of is a bedrock for, your, for our lives. If, you, if, you, if that becomes really strong in you it's a bedrock because no, nothing doesn't matter what happened you know if you end up in in a, in a Chinese prison as a as a, as a political uh, prisoner or something see underneath it there runs this this knowledge that even this too will pass even this you know that there is an actual end to suffering without that is you know like what is there is despair see? 
So just making that sort of little uh, distinction there. But here's the Buddha, you see, in, in a Katagiri Sutta, and he says, I do not say that the, me- that the attainment of profound knowledge comes straight away. Nevertheless, the attainment of profound knowledge comes by gradual training, a gradual doing, a gradual course. And how does the attainment of profound knowledge come by means of gradual training, gradual doing, gradual course? As it is, monks, one who has faith draws near. Drawing near, they sit nearby. Sitting nearby, they lend an ear. Lending an ear, they hear the Dharma. And having heard the Dharma, they remember it. They test the meaning of things, born in the mind. And while testing the meaning, the things are approved of. There being approved of, desire is born. Now this is the aspiration, hmm? not desire in the sensual sense. And when aspiration, I think I prefer that word, aspiration is born, they make an effort. And having made an effort, they weigh it up. Having weighed it up, they strive, and being self-resolute, they realize for themselves the highest truth itself, penetrating by the means of wisdom they see. It's a gradual process. And um, I'll be talking about this just a bit more tomorrow, <clears throat> but also um, that lack of faith in the teacher, the Dharma, the Sangha, the training. And he also says in being angry and displeased with one's companions in the holy life. So that can, I mean, that's happened. I know people who've become very displeased with, <laughs> with their companions and, and shot off somewhere, you know. I want to tell you though that this business of expectation is a real killer. I, uh, when I first started, um, we used to do these long retreats, and I met this um, this man who became a friend. And um, it was the way the Mahasi system teaches it. I don't teach it like that at all, but they g- it gives you goals to go for. And this uh, particular friend of mine really got involved in a, trying to achieve these goals. And I was there, looking back now, I was there when he gave up the practice. Well, it was a kernel moment in his life. I mean, I didn't realize how kernel it was, of course. But I, he dropped, like... He, he was one of these people that did six-month retreats and then six-month sex, drug and rock and roll. <laughs> <laughs> And although he's, he's a, I mean, boy, if somebody could meditate, uh, this man could. But because it, he hadn't achieved it, he sort of lost the faith, he lost confidence, lost confidence in himself. Couldn't do it, not this lifetime, that sort of argument. And he dropped. And I lost contact. Ten years later, he turns up and we meet. And that year, he told me, this is, this is a while back when money was, uh, you know, money. He just spent £8,000 on crack. So it's uh, quite a danger to fall into the error of expectation. Expect nothing. So I think that just about um, brings us to the end of our little discussion of faith.
not a, not a nice story to end with. <laughs> An admonishment. <laughs> An exhortation. Don't expect anything. So, um, faith is a sort of core, basic attitude within us, which we can develop through our practice, you know. And if, if you feel your confidence declining, if you feel your confidence going, um, you know, try, try to see that something is happening there which is undermining. Try to see what is actually undermining your confidence, you see. Even um, not keeping resolutions which can undermine your confidence. So often people will say, beginners come to meditation and they make this big determination of they're going to sit for two hours in the morning and two hours in the evening, you know. And it lasts till Monday. And then, and then, then they, they can't do it. They can't do it. So it's really just um, being aware of how easily we can undermine ourselves, you know. And in states of doubt, see those, um, they'll always come up until we've, uh, you know, achieved that sort of deep insight into things. And not to be fooled by doubt. Often it's an honest doubt, which the Buddha would want, yeah? a state of confusion. And just to stay in that and just to feel how uncomfortable it is. We don't like to be in a place of not knowing very uncomfortable, a lot of fear and anxiety in there. So this is a real teaching because, you know, in some sense we don't know. There's lots of things we don't know. You don't know whether you'll be here tomorrow. You might be up there or down there. Who knows? <laughs> you don't know, do you? You just don't know. You don't know what's going to happen. And it's living in that don't know place which is um, very instructive and just to stay there Often we can't make a decision until more information comes in, till we have more experience, till there's a clarification. You know, not to push the process because we don't like staying in that position of not knowing. And when it comes to uh, the growth of faith, you know, um, like taking refuges tomorrow, um, to see it as a... Uh, uh, for some of you who, who haven't done it, to see it just as a, as, a, as a trial. How does it feel when I commit myself to a path for one month, one year? One year is better. Huh? One month goes too quick. How does it, how does it feel you know, at the end of that year? What's gone? You know, has some indecision gone? Has some clarity come? Okay? And remember, it's in, it's in the commitment that one can really begin to investigate. Because remember, so long as the commitment isn't there, there's always that pulling off, there's always that shying away. Hmm? So, <clears throat> hopefully, um, these words of mine have been of some assistance. May you be liberated in this very lifetime sooner rather than later. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.